Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Free of Charge, a podcast from Canada's premier nuclear science and technology organization, Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, or CNL for short. I'm your host, Larkin Mosscrop, a program manager for Advanced Reactors. And today, we're going to be exploring space, or more specifically, how space radiation affects an astronaut's body, and how we can do research about that here on Earth. To guide this conversation, I'm going to be speaking with three researchers from our radiobiology branch, whose research and work revolves around understanding how radiation affects our biological systems, from the gut to the eyes. As you can imagine, this work has medical and health-related applications, like improving how we quantify radiation exposure doses and develop better diagnosis and medical treatments using nuclear research and technology. So to the question of how does space affect an astronaut's body, we're going to start the conversation with Holly Laxo. Holly is a research biologist whose work largely focuses on examining the effects of low-dose radiation on biological processes. She's going to explain what low-dose radiation actually is, and then we're going to talk about how the radioactive environment like space can change the microorganism makeup of an astronaut's gut. Welcome to the podcast, Holly. Thanks, Larkin. Very excited to be here. So let's get straight into it. A lot of your work is centered on how low-dose radiation affects biological processes. Can you start with what is low-dose radiation? Yeah, of course. Um, So low-dose radiation, it's defined as doses that are below 100 millisieverts. Um, So in absorbed doses, that would be below 100 milligray. Um, So to kind of put into perspective, a CT scan is usually 1 to 10 millisieverts. So that would be a very low-dose range. Um, And then even kind of our regular day-to-day life, like transatlantic flights, would be much lower than that, about 0.33 millisieverts. And to be clear, is space considered a low-dose radiation environment? Yeah, good question. So it's actually both. So when we're close to the Earth's orbit, so what's called low Earth orbit, there's actually low doses of radiation. So astronauts that are in that range um, are actually only getting about 0.5 to 1 millisieverts per day. So it's quite, it's fairly low. Uh, When we go into deep space or outside of the LEO or low um, Earth orbit, what we see is that there's much higher doses. Um, And this is due to different radiation qualities and sources. So when you're talking about low Earth orbit, that's things like the International Space Station, or is that even outside of that? Uh, Nope, that's right. So the International Space Station is about 200 kilometers, and low Earth orbit is about, um, it depends on the range, but some say as far as 2,000 above Earth. Okay, so that's why it makes such a difference, is looking at the low Earth orbit versus, say, all those astronauts thinking about going to Mars. Exactly. So how does your low-dose radiation work bridge into looking at astronaut gut health? So a lot of recent studies have indicated that astronauts who have gone to space, when they return, they actually do have changes in their microbiome. Um, So we do have interest in understanding how is space radiation, because it is unique from Earth, how is it affecting microorganisms in the gut? Um, So I should probably briefly explain the microbiome um, is a collection of bacteria, viruses, protozoa that exist really throughout the body, but predominantly inside the gastrointestinal tract. Right, and that gut health has been related recently, at least, to overall health and well-being. Exactly, yep. 
No, that's a great point. So um, there's lots of connections of the microbiome affecting um, mental health, affecting cancer, um, and then definitely just our absorption of nutrients and water and different essential vitamins and metals um, from the intestinal tract. So you said that space radiation is a bit different than what we see on Earth, but we do actually get background radiation on Earth from cosmic rays. So in that way, it's similar. But what kind of radiation are we talking about when we're talking about space radiation? Yeah, so space radiation um, consists of really just a variety of different types of qualities. Um, so we do have gamma rays would be present, um, and that's something that's definitely present on Earth. Some of the unique characteristics of space is that there's neutron radiation, um, which is the release of free neutrons. Um, proton radiation was also release of free protons, um, and then something called heavy ions. Um, and these are actually very damaging. They can permeate through um, spacecraft, through astronaut suits. Um, and so although they're not really present in low Earth orbit, they're more found in uh, deep space, it is something definitely that needs to be considered. That's interesting. So those different types of radiation is really what's affecting the, the gut biome differently. So how do you look at that? So our interest right now um, is looking at the microbiome, bacteria. Um, so on Earth, some of the things that we can do is just look at how uh, the microbiome in different animal models, like mouse models, respond to these different radiation qualities that you would find in space. So basically how those different and unique space particles, because it seems like a lot of particle irradiation, can affect the, the biome that we don't see here. So how do we do that then? If we're not getting exposed to those free neutrons and protons, how do we do that test here at CNL? Yeah, um, exactly. So it's very difficult to get samples from astronauts. So yep, as mentioned, um, our interest is using animal models. So here at CNL, we have a few facilities that are readily available for us. We have gamma facilities like our gamma beam hall and also gamma cells, which we can either do chronic or acute radiation from gamma. And then we also do have our own neutron sources. Um, for things like heavy ions and protons, we don't actually have those facilities at CNL at the moment for usage in animal studies. Um, but fortunately, we're able to collaborate with different institutions in the United States that will actually allow us to um, either house mice there or bring mice to uh, use those radiation facilities. Um, and then we can try different experiments with those unique radiation qualities. So you mentioned the gamma cell. How does the gamma cell relate to um, the exposure of different types of radiation in space? Um, so there is gamma or photon radiation found in space. Um, we also really like to use it in our radiobiology experiments because gamma, also x-rays, are just really well characterized for us. Um, so they serve as a nice, almost um, radiation control. So we, we can use our own facilities, um, we can see how gamma is affecting the microbiome, and then use it as a comparator to things like neutrons or protons. So once we understand how the microbiome is affected in a mice, our mouse model, why, why do we really care about that though? Like why does it matter to an astronaut? Right, so astronauts, they've been seen to have a lot of different um, physiological responses when they go to space. A lot of them are connected to things like microgravity, so we see different distribution of bodily fluids, different change in muscle mass, um, but one that's of particular interest is actually weakening of the immune system. 
And hmm. so what's of interest to us is um, there's a very strong correlation of the microbiome to the immune response. So our interest is seeing um, if astronauts go to space and they're seeing this change in the immune system, is the microbiome playing a part in that? Interesting. So we're wondering if it's actually because of the microbiome or is it some other characteristic of space that might be causing that immune response? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, if I had to guess, I'd say it probably is a combination of different things, but the microbiome could definitely be playing a role. And then also, if we have ways of um, either maintaining the microbiome to Earth-like homeostasis or um, kind of its normal state, or ways of maybe actually adding more beneficial bacteria to the microbiome while astronauts are in space, maybe we can help mitigate some of those immune or negative immune responses. More yogurt. That's it. More yogurt, more probiotics, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that we're doing this work on, like, in our laboratories and in the States using different types of radiation. But what kind of changes are you actually seeing? What are we looking at? Yeah, so this work um, is still very new. It actually just started a few months ago, so we're still in the planning stages. Um, I have worked on microbiome changes in a previous study. Um, and so we didn't do any kind of space correlation with that. It was mostly just gamma um, and beta radiation. Um, and how that experiment was performed, and it'll be kind of similar this time, is um, we're exposed to mice, we take fecal samples, so take the poop, um, and then we extract all the bacterial DNA, and then we sequence something that's called the 16S rRNA. Um, and this is basically just a unique gene to every bacterial species. So by looking at the abundance of this gene, we can make predictions about um, how much of a certain bacterial species is there, and also an idea of the richness. Is there a lot of different species, or is it pretty homogeneous? Interesting. And then are you also looking at mice that you haven't irradiated in order to see what the difference is between the two? Yes, absolutely. So for these, we will have mice that have not been exposed. Um, if we end up using, well, we will. When we use facilities outside of CNL, uh, those mice will basically just come along for the ride. Um, so they'll have the same exposure to stress, the same diet, sunlight, um, as the other mice, but they just won't have the irradiation. And it's interesting because the mice that we use are specifically made usually for specific experiments because of their, their gut biomes or their backgrounds. That's a really excellent point. So we're still trying to decide what's the best approach here. So there are some mice that actually you can have more of a human microbiome profile which would be a really nice correlation to astronaut and astronaut health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're still, we're still working out, is that the best route to go, or do we want to stay with just sort of our regular research mice because, you know, we're a bit more comfortable handling those. That's really interesting. I think there's so much about microbiome that's been coming out and that's been advancing, and understanding how low-dose radiation can affect it is something I've never really thought about. So what, what made you guys think about this? So there's been some recent studies that have come out um, that indicated that astronauts who have traveled to space, um, they come back and they have had changes in their microbiome. Um, and one that's been um, kind of particularly highlighted recently is this sort of famous NASA twin study. So they had identical twins, one became an astronaut, one's just kind of regular guy that lives in the U.S. Um, the twin went to space for, I think it was a few months, maybe six months, 
um, returned. And then they actually, it's kind of like they had a control already on Earth. And they compared quite a few um, different physiological responses in the astronaut versus his twin. Um, and one change they did see was a change in the microbiome. Um, so there is definitely something happening in space that's affecting the microbiome. Um, what they found was that his microbiome actually um, reverted back to its normal state after six months being on Earth, um, and likely due to as he returned to his diet and his regular lifestyle and sleeping cycle. But one thing that you know is of interest to us is in that time where his microbiome was changed, did it cause other changes? Mm-hmm. Um, do we see you know effects in the immune response, and did those revert back after six months? So these are all questions that we're interested in looking into. So you mentioned that there's a lot of different factors that you have to consider. So it's it's the mouse, if it correlates, it's having a control, it's using different facilities, but and that we have at CNL a lot of facilities that we can use, but we're gonna go outside. So those some mice just get to take a trip. But what other types of challenges do you have in doing either mouse research or this research specifically? And how do we address it at Chalk River? Right, so this study has the unique component of space. Um, And of course, space travel has a lot of really unique um, environmental changes from Earth. Probably one of the major one being changes in the gravity. Um, So it's a microgravity environment. It's very hard for us to recapitulate that here. Although there are different options of doing that, Um, Mice don't swim. You can't just throw them in the pool like the astronauts. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's exactly it. Especially at CNL, we're not necessarily prepared for that type of research. So um, some of these factors we're just going to have to try to work in later on. Other things like diet, we can change the mouse's diet to be uh, more similar to what astronauts would have. Um, Astronauts also have differences in circadian rhythm from typical Earth. Um, And that's also something we can account for with the mice. Well, that's really, really interesting. So the mice are going to be exposed to space-like conditions, and you'll have done a pre and a post kind of examination of their poop. That's right. And hopefully we can see a difference and a change. And once you get this experiment going, you can come on back and tell us all about it. So thank you so much for your time today, Holly. And I look forward to hearing about the mice. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed this. And now we're going to move our way up the body a bit to the heart with our next guest, Dr. Soji Sebastian. Soji is a radiobiology and health researcher here at Canadian Nuclear Laboratories who investigates the biological effects of different types of low-dose ionizing radiation exposures. He's particularly interested in whether or not different types of radiations can cause gene-altering health effects to skeletal muscle and the heart. Soji's actually taking part in the European Space Agency's Investigation of Biological Effects of Space Radiation program, which investigates the cardiovascular or heart-related risks of space radiation. And these risks are what we're going to exploring today together. Welcome to the podcast, Soji. I'm happy to be here, Larkin, and thank you so much for having me here. So let's get to the heart of your work. Can you tell me a little bit about what uh, effects you are investigating? We are looking at the effects of uh, low-dose ionizing radiation, in particular low-dose and low-fluence radiations, and how does that affect a human heart, especially with reference to astronauts' health. The deep space, especially the galactic cosmic radiation part, composed of different types of radiation, in fact. Uh, To begin with is the heavy iron and high energy proton. Along with that, 
when you consider the spacecraft when the GC spectra, which is the galactic cosmic radiation, hits or pass through the spacecraft, it can generate secondary radiation as well, which has a stronger gamma and neutron component. So we are looking at not just one type of radiation, but also what are the synergy between these types of radiation on the human heart, especially on astronauts. Okay, so how are you getting these synergistic types of radiation on Earth? We have a wonderful facility at Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. We have different sources, a multitude of sources at Chalk River. You can have X-ray, gamma, and neutron, and you can have a mixed radiation field, which is a unique differentiator at the Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. Okay, so you just said that radiation from space can actually be amplified in a spacecraft. So how do you shield astronauts from that then? Well, up to some extent, we can shield astronauts, but that's not really efficient. Astronaut does get certain doses. Longer they stay there, larger would be the received dose. But obviously, we have a regulatory limit, and nobody goes beyond that. And how do you do it? Do you use mouse studies, just like Holly? I use a human stem cell model as an experimental model system in the laboratory. And uh, we can get these cells from biopsies of healthy donors. There are certified vendors all across the United States and Germany where we procure these stem cells from. Just to clarify, the research that's being done right now, the goal is to figure out how to mitigate the effects of radiation on the heart tissue? That's correct. So there are shielding available, right, to protect the astronauts, but obviously that is not sufficient, especially galactic cosmic radiation can pass through any material, right? And longer you stay, obviously, larger the dose you accumulate, right? So right now, the kind of research what we are doing is looking at the biological effects of these types of radiation on heart stem cells, experimental model, right? And from our studies, what we are actually trying to understand is what are the unique biomarkers of radiation? And once you know that, you can definitely come up with a solution. You can identify drug targets by setting up a drug screen and coming up with a radioprotectant drug which can protect astronauts' health. So what are some of these biomarkers? Well, from our ongoing uh, gene expression studies and mass spectrometry-based analysis, we have a fair idea. Again, uh, these things are actually work in progress. So we are working on it. We see that there are some gene expression changes with related to cardiac or heart cell functions, especially the beating cycle is being affected by radiation, and whether or not that can be uh, fixed by using a drug-based approach we are looking into it. Why are we looking at the heart? Has there been evidence to show that astronauts have issues with their hearts after space? There is an interesting report came out way back in 2016, a study led by a Canadian researcher in collaboration with the CSA and NASA by involving a number of astronauts. They conducted experimental work in the International Space Station and they identified that by staying in the ISS, which is the International Space Station, more than six months can age a human's heart by up to 10 to 20 years. That's huge, especially given that's only six months of time and these Mars trips are looking at two or three years. Absolutely. So there's going to be a huge unknown things and obviously that can set up the stage for future latent health effects. For example, cardiovascular diseases. 
And these astronauts are already healthy to start with. Absolutely. So aging 10 or 20 years over just six months can be, that's a huge impact. Can be detrimental. And so those biomarkers, did they see biomarkers in that study when he was looking at Their the study specifically was on vascular echo and the physiological perturbations, what they have looked at so far, but nothing on stem cells yet. But stem cells are actually the basic factor or basic unit for regeneration. Therefore, we are studying stem cell-based uh, uh, experimental work and looking at the ramifications uh, after exposure to radiation. And also, by doing this, we are decoupling the radiation effects from microgravity because of the same study or the same group, they do not know yet what are the actually, what are the contributions from radiation alone or from microgravity creating this kind of a situation. The researcher found that there was a lot of effects on the heart in space, but that they weren't really sure if it was because of the microgravity in space or if it was the radiation in space. So can you test that somehow? Well, once you identify changes in gene expression and, you know, all the endpoint analysis by the technique what I mentioned before, we could confirm that in a simulated microgravity environment, which can easily be created in our laboratory and How? we can test it. Uh, there are instruments which uh, simulate the gravity aspects, especially the microgravity called Kleinostat or an instrument by itself named as gravity instrument where you can place your cells at the same time you can expose them to radiation in an incubator closer to a radiation source. So you can look really at the effects of microgravity versus the effects of microgravity and radiation and Absolutely. just of radiation. Absolutely, we can. So my daughter did a science fair project about the effect of gravity on the human body. And she found that actually you get taller in space. And so that's kind of what you're talking about with microgravity. It affects the muscles in different ways. Absolutely. So not only muscle, bone is affected. And also we have uh, neurological issues as well. So the aging that they see in a person's heart on space, what kind of aging is it? Well, I can explain based on what they observe, especially the kind of perturbations what they observed can lead to arteriosclerosis, which is the thickening of the artery walls and the ventricular walls. And that will certainly affect the functionality of the heart in which heart's pumping ability to supply blood to various parts of the body and the organs and the tissue will be affected. Situations like this will definitely increase the risk towards latent health effects, for example, different types of arrhythmias. So this research originally was done on the ISS, as you said, with astronauts. So how are you doing this work in the lab? Well, so we perform these experiments on stem cells, especially cardiomyocyte in the laboratory in Chalk River. We can basically derive these cells from biopsies, culture them in the lab in vitro conditions, because we have standard procedures and optimi optimized conditions for this. Once you expose them to radiation, then you can pick different time points and perform a multitude of endpoint analysis, which is really comprises of, let's say, mass spectrometry based to protein measurements. Then you can have perturbations in gene expression that can be identified by next generation DNA sequencing. So these techniques all in all can give you a hint of what are the biomarkers specific to different types of radiation. That's what we are working on it and we are employing uh, both computational and AI approaches to find those biomarkers. And do the cells look any different? Absolutely. So upon exposure to radiation, especially as per the doses 
depending on the type of radiation and also depending on the dose of the radiation. Size and the shape of the cells, especially the morphology, changes. And this can be easily verified or quantified by laser scanning microscopy, and we do that at Chalk River. And what's different about them? Well, a change in size and shape definitely affect its ability to function, especially how to cycle, how to grow, and characteristics like uh, the way in which it grows, propagate, and uh, differentiate to form hard tissue will be affected. Hence the aging. Exactly. With this, this is a very specific project, and the other half has to be about how do we protect astronauts from getting this 10 to 20 years of aging. What is that looking like? How, how do we protect astronauts? Well, we'll start from biomarkers. If you are successful in identifying and characterizing these biomarkers, you can design drug cocktails around that. And so medications? Medications, exactly. To protect the change of those stem cells? That's right. That's correct. Wow. I didn't know that you could take a medication to protect yourself from, like, your stem cells. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, in order to reach that particular stage, we need to definitely have to have an idea about the biomarkers, mm -hmm. right? Different types of biomarkers, depending on which is being modulated by different types of radiation, right? Then you have a fair idea. You can screen several small molecule inhibitors, which has a radioprotectant effect. Okay. And you can basically figure out which particular drug cocktail protects these cells from uh, physiological perturbations. That's really fascinating, Soji. So as I said to Holly, I don't imagine that this is very easy work. What kind of obstacles do you face in doing this type of research? Well, as we all know, we went through three years of pandemic. At the time, I was actually picking up momentum. My work at ESA, uh, at GSI, Darmstadt, Germany, where we have access to those facilities for heavy iron radiation, which is galactic cosmic radiation. And we faced a lot of issues, both at the level of logistics and supply chain, finding the right resources, Finding the support services were a bit challenging, but again, we kind of figured it out uh, how to you know, proceed with these experimental work and uh, gain momentum and progress. But just to mitigate issues like this, we are looking into um, accessing facilities across the United States, especially labs managed by uh, Department of Energy. Myself and Holly are looking into securing facility beam time at these uh, laboratories. That's really great. You know, I, I know supply chain was a challenge for so many people, uh, and so I'm, I'm happy that you're still able to make progress and continue. So how do you think that your work is going to contribute to the overall health and well-being of astronauts? In general, scientific experiments performed on astronauts in space improve our understanding of medical conditions on Earth. Overall, this research produced findings that can definitely help people suffering from, for example, cardiovascular diseases, or type 2 diabetes, even cancer, right? So it's a win-win situation for Canadian public, healthcare industry, and for us. And projects like this will definitely help generating or developing next-generation radiobiologists. And finally, initiatives like this at the institutional level will set the stage for building Center of Excellence in Space Research. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Soji. It was a pleasure. I learned so much from you. You're most welcome, Larkin, and thank you for having me. 
from the gut biome to the heart, now we're moving up the body again to the eyes with our final guest, Dr. Richard Richardson. Richard is a research scientist who's also part of our radiobiology and health department here at CNL. And for the past four years, he's been leading research here on how space radiation impacts the human eyes, specifically through the formation of cataracts. And that's what he's going to be telling us about today. Welcome, Richard. I'm pleased to be here. So let's start with what is a cataract? Think of a, a lens as a onion type tissue and it starts growing and in childhood the nucleus is the part that's grown and that keeps growing slower as you age. Well that central part, if it clouds over and goes yellow in old age, causes a nuclear cataract. The part around it that forms in adulthood, the cortical part of the lens, is where cortical cataracts will, will occur. And then the other type, the third type of cataract, which is important, is posterior subcapsule cataracts, which are on the outside of the lens, at the back of the lens. And these ones can be a big problem because they're in your line of sight. I didn't know that your eye continued to grow throughout your life. And is that why you see more cataracts in older people? There's many reasons why you would see cataracts in, in older people, but it's a problem of aging. You know, you've got oxidative stress, and that is probably the main cause of cataracts. The lens is a very hypoxic tissue, the most hypoxic tissue in the body. That is, it has the lowest oxygen levels of any tissue in the body. And the reason for that is to keep your lens free of oxidative stress if, as much as it can, and to last you the lifetime. So cataracts can happen to anybody, usually happens as you age, but why does that relate to astronauts? Well, in North America, about 20% of the population will have cataracts at, at age 65, whereas astronauts, two-thirds of them will, will have cataracts at age 65. So, you know, this is a, a big risk. Astronauts are a very fit group, so, you know, it's not an, a, not an aging issue that would go along with these nuclear cataracts. It's, it's more that when they're in space, they have a job of work to do uh, in these spacecraft, and that visual impairment is a, a big factor. And even now, you know, in these um, short journeys, short, shorter duration journeys that we have now compared with say, on the moon, living on the moon or, uh, or on Mars, these shorter duration journeys give them uh, quite considerable uh, visual problems. And cataracts uh, on a journey back from Mars would be a real health hazard for their survival. And safety as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So to my understanding, your research is looking into what causes astronauts to develop cataracts at a significantly higher rate than us here on Earth. So. Does that relate to the hypoxic tissue of the lens or does it relate to just like extra stresses on the lens? Well, the research is more about radiation-induced cataracts in general. And these can occur in, say, radiotherapy, especially patients who have head and neck tumors to treat. Or it can occur uh, from people having radiation from the health service, uh, radiologists and so on or in the nuclear industry, or it can occur to astronauts from space radiation. So any type of radiation will induce cataracts. 
or promote them so they come earlier than they otherwise would. That's interesting. So Holly was talking to us about low-dose radiation and that most space work that we do is low-dose low environment. So cataracts then don't really take a lot of dose to develop. Well, that's a very debatable point because, you know, the regulations, um, there is a, a threshold at radiation level at which uh, cataracts are deemed to recur. But I have to say that through the decades, that level, that threshold of radiation level has come down. And has it come down through experiments that have been done? It's come down because of experiments like uh, animal experiments that are carried out here and, and elsewhere in the world. And it also it has come down due to epidemiology of certain groups that are exposed to radiation and therefore you have the information about what dose that occurred at. And astronauts uh, are one important group where that uh, epidemiology um, gives you information about radiation-induced cataracts. So what is it that you can do here on Earth to investigate radiation-induced cataracts? Yeah, that's a good question. We start off the project, uh, say, four years ago, and the first task was to, to educate ourselves, to be honest, and therefore what I did was to publish with others uh, in the field a review paper on cataracts looking at uh, a particular radiation type of cataract, which is the posterior subcapsular cataract. And then after that, um, published a paper on the effect of oxygen on the early astronauts and, and their cataracts. And then thirdly, uh, published a paper on, this is a catchy title, Mitochondria Need Their Sleep. And you may think, well, why would that uh, be important also for cataracts? And it, mitochondria provide, they eat up that oxygen and provide energy. Right. And therefore, you know, they're part of the problem. But not only that, those mitochondria, they have a mito-restorative time in the nighttime more than, say, the daytime. And astronauts have a, a mixed-up circadian rhythm, sleep-wake cycles, and therefore, you know, there are confounding factors as why they have eye and uh, mental problems from, from being um, in space. So it might just not be the radiation effect, but there's also those confounding factors, as you mentioned, that might be affecting cataracts. Absolutely. That, that's the key. It's very difficult, I would say impossible, to just focus on one aspect alone. You have to know what else is influencing, maybe in a synergistic way, cataract development. What other aspects are there than just, say, sleep or circadian rhythm? I'll just back up on that question, if I can, a little bit. I'll just tackle the radiation side first. We have projects which I'm involved with, looking at neutrons, which is a space-type radiation. And this is important to get to know what the radiation side is. As to the other aspects of what causes or influences the uh, promotion of cataracts, inflammation is one of those, and that was tackled in the review paper to some extent. Inflammation is the most uh, profound effect of in ABOM survivors, uh, more than cancer, probably. 
inflammation is a very strong radiation-induced effect. But oddly enough, it's not really been taken account of in radiation-induced uh, cataracts. So that was one thing we looked at. Interesting. Yeah, and it involves other tissues other than the lens. And if I may, one of the reasons where we've got a publication that's been accepted is just in press. We've calculated the doses from electrons, photons, and neutrons, not only to the lens, but to the other parts of the eye that are involved in, say, retinitis, say, the retina, or in inflammation. It's called a uvea. That's the middle layer of three layers in the eyeball. Using neutron, proton, and electrons. electrons, you're able to mimic the different types of radiation out in space. That's right. You can calculate the dose, say, to specific parts of the eye. That's how, how much detail you can get. And what you find is that you get effects. One aspect of this is the oxygen effect. Uh, the lens is a very hypoxic tissue, mm -hmm. so is well protected, but... Other parts of the eye, um, are, like the retina, are full of blood, you know, and they have to be because they've got neurons. That's the only part of the brain you can have a look at through your eyeballs, right? That part is more susceptible to uh, higher oxygen levels and therefore it's more susceptible to radiation-induced damage. Uh, and you, we know this because of cancer treatments, right? The, the, the cancer stem cells that hide away in the uh, hypoxic central part of a tumor are hard to radiate away, uh, kill them off in effect, uh, and because they're in a hypoxic area. So oxygen is um, one of the key things that we are also looking at. And what about the effect of microgravity? Obviously, you know, people who study the health effects of astronauts have to take into account microgravity as well. And there's a special condition that the the astronauts have, and that's called SANS. It's a brain-eye condition that uh, astronauts have, and whether that also takes part in uh, cataract development is an aspect for future study. Although we did publish in one area on the oxygen part of it. Prior to 1976, US astronauts were in spacecraft with just 100% oxygen. But that stopped in 1976. You may know the reason. They had a fire and uh, three astronauts died pre-launch. So since then, they've, they've used Earth-type atmospheres in, in spacecraft. But one of the odd findings that uh, in a 2001 publication of looking at the epidemiology of these um, NASA astronauts is that they had nuclear cataracts. Hmm. And so the publication put forward the point that nuclear cataracts occur when somebody has, a patient has hyperbaric treatment for, and say, wounds. What is hyperbaric treatment? Well, it's where you go in a chamber with high oxygen levels to, in most cases, to better the wound healing. And these patients, not many years later, can have uh, nuclear cataracts. So there's obviously something to do with oxygen. So really, is your research really focused around radiation and oxygen synergistically? Yes, it is, um, in some ways. And this way, you know, we identified that the, probably the oxygen in the spa early spacecraft had, had to, uh, caused these nuclear cataracts rather than, say, the radiation-type cataracts. But oxygen is important um, because of oxidative stress, and that is one thing that we're continuing to do. 
put into place a hypoxia chamber in a specialized lab and in that specialized lab we can uh, look at um, experiments about the effects of oxygen in the eye in lens cells and the, the cells that we look at they're called lens epithelial cells because unlike an onion the lens of the eye doesn't expand if you like grow uh, in all directions with leaves on the outside there's a one cell layer on one side of the lens the front end of the lens that forms the layers of the or the fibers of the um, lenses so these lens epithelial cells uh, to understand the role of oxygen and oxidative stress on on cataract development so before 1976 there was a really high oxygen after there was Earth oxygen at 21%. In spacecraft. In spacecraft, right. And you know that not not enough oxygen changed the type of, of cataract. So there's obviously some sort of association between oxygen and radiation and the types of cataracts you get. So is there the right amount of radiation or the right amount of oxygen? Well, there seems to be what's called a Goldilocks range of, of oxygen for all cells, including the cells in the lens. If you have too little or too much, it can be detrimental. If you have too, too much, you can cause nuclear cataracts. If you have too little, funny enough, you cause the radiation-type cataracts, which is the posterior subcapsular cataracts mm -hmm. but that also occurs in diabetics as well and so therefore there seems to be an involvement in the oxygen level in cataract development now it's unknown whether radiation lowers the oxygen level in the eye that is unknown but uh, certainly you know it, 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 it is a factor where does this leave your research now? Where are you in looking at the effects of radiation and oxygen on the, on the lens? As I said, we have these very specialized cells called lens epithelial cells that grow on the front of the lens. And we can mimic the very low conditions in the eye. And we can go from a range from zero oxygen to um, atmospheric oxygen, which is 21%. And so that allows us to look at what's called the oxygen effect. So that's the first thing we're doing. We're right. looking at what's called the radiation oxygen effect. Now, again, mitochondria might be involved, and um, I, that is a big part. And so we're trying to identify what it is that radiation induces in, in the lens to cause uh, these health effects. I mean, it's a health effect that in space on a three-year journey to, to Mars the doses uh, will be around about one sievert. You ought to remember that one year on Earth from natural radiation, in space, that will happen, those kind of dose levels, within a few days. So in the International Space Station, the doses there are 200 times plus what they are on Earth, and on the far side of the moon, they'll even be a double again. So, you know, there is the risk and a very real risk of visual impairment due to not only cataracts, but maybe other aspects of um, detriment to the lens, not only from radiation, that's one part of it, but also from microgravity and uh, from circadian rhythm disturbances that astronauts uh, suffer from, unfortunately. 
So we are getting to know the ONASA and uh, and uh, now Canada in the Gateway Project is getting to know and uh, more and more through research in Canada and far beyond about these effects and, and to mitigate um, and help uh, reduce these effects and, and get the, the astronauts home without the need for cataract surgery. I was going to ask if there's a big collaboration project, given the fact that there's so many aspects that really kind of contribute to cataracts and astronauts. Yeah, we work with uh, colleagues in England uh, in their uh, health services um, or health um, ministries there. We work with Canadian Space Agency. Uh, in this work, you know, you, you're well advised to talk to people internationally to understand some of the things that you don't know or, or you'd like to know. Well, this discussion has been very eye-opening, so <laughs> thank, you. thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Free of Charge, Conversations in Canadian Nuclear Science. This podcast is produced by Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, Canada's premier nuclear science and technology organization. To learn more about us, you can visit our website at www.cnl.ca or follow us on social media. Until next time.